Was it scary? 100%. Did I know what I was doing? I thought I did. Now I, I think I know a little bit more, but but it's in that like conviction to find early success and really listen to the market. And what the market told me was that there was appetite for that. And that led me to you know kind of continue to trust myself. Hey everyone, welcome to Nonlinear, a podcast about the decisions that shape our careers. I'm Dave Fano, the founder and CEO of Teal and the host of this show. If you're enjoying the conversation on this episode, please make sure to subscribe, share, and rate us wherever you're listening to the show. It really helps shine a light on these amazing careers and increases the chances of us learning from each other. Again, thank you so much, and let's jump into this amazing career story. All right, today we're with Javier Ramirez Lugo, uh, who... Uh, if you're gonna, if you've noticed a recurring theme, if you've listened to a few episodes, him and I work together at WeWork. You know, it's a recurring theme throughout all the episodes as you leverage your relationships, and uh, and we're gonna talk a lot about that in this episode. So, with that, Javier, want to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Awesome. First of all, Dave, stoked to be here. Thanks for having me. A little bit about myself. I'm from Puerto Rico. I've been in the States for about 16 years. Started my career in finance, and right after that, jumped into the tech world, and I've haven't looked back since. I had the pleasure of running into you at WeWork, which was a lot of fun. I learned a lot of great things. And uh, I currently live in Miami, which I know is a city that has a lot for both of us. Yeah. And actually, we'll we'll talk about that because as close as you grew up, when you came to the States, you actually went far away and then found yourself closer. True. Um, True. Cool. So you've had a really incredible career and you still got a lot of career ahead of you, but you know, I was looking quickly before our conversation, your longest job tenure was two years, three months. It basically, it looked like this is two year, one month, one year, three months, 10 months, two years, three months, seven months, two years, one month, four roles at that company. So six months per role. And then now what you're doing and what, what that tells me is just like, you're always in motion, always moving up, always iterating. And I don't think that was by accident. And, you know, I think it's, it's an important thing for people to see because so many people worry that, you know, if I move jobs, I'm going to get left behind. But I think it's actually the opposite for you, the rate that you were moving. But I, I just feel like there was an intentionality from the beginning. So when you think about your career, like when was your, your first real career decision? First of all, I, I mean, I, I've never heard someone d- depict my LinkedIn so so aggressively. So I wonder if that's what recruiters actually look at. But you know, it, it's funny, Dave, because for me, career movement has always been about, you know, kind of finding some place that has like the best match for me. And the first career decision, I think it's like when you go to school, you know, I majored uh, or dual majored in finance and entrepreneurship. So for me, it was about like whether I started in a more entrepreneurial world, which I always knew was going to be the end game. Or did I go to finance? And to be honest with you, there was a professor that that had a lot of influence on that career decision from a, from the get go for me, who told us like you know go get your foundation, get your contacts, you know get your business acumen, and then start something. So that led me to start uh, on the finance route, which which led me to New York. And I couldn't be more grateful for that opportunity because obviously, like as you go into sales, as you go into other lines of business, having that that business acumen from or the early days has just made such a profound impact in, in, in everything that I've done. Why did you pick finance uh, for school? So I, I like numbers. You know, it's funny. My, my oldest brother um, had a lot of impact in me. I, I'm the youngest of three. 
And my oldest brother was always trading stocks, you know, since a young age. So I remember going to his account and he's like, hey, you know, use my account. It's all good. And, you know, whatever you make, take it out. And I mean, I wasn't trading millions of dollars or anything close, but it was like, you know, I made 10 bucks. So just take it out or whatever. <laughs> so that really interested me. You know, that that led me to go into finance with an approach of investing, of like wealth creation and all these types of things. And because finance had the ability to see so much in business, I always knew that I didn't want to be a doctor or I didn't want to be a lawyer, which is sort of the traditional sort of career paths that everyone, at least back home in Puerto Rico, have. Um, so for me, it was, it was pretty obvious to, to go that route. Oh, that's cool. So it was a, I'm always trying to kind of codify how people pick their careers. And your, so yours was kind of like familial influence, but from a sibling and less like from a parent. Funny you ask that. And I don't know if this has to do anything with the topic, but my old man is an entrepreneur during the day and a musician at night. So I knew that was the end game. In fact, if you look at my setup, I have a couple of guitars behind me and people always ask me about them. But it was definitely familial, you know, kind of influence. But also, like, I thought that I was thinking long term since the beginning because I wanted to have that knowledge where I could bring it to the rest of my career. Whereas I feel like the finance environment where you have to put super long hours, as you might imagine, I wouldn't be able to like probably, you know, do it for somebody else. Now I do it for myself. But, you know, early in my career, I knew it was, it was the right decision. If that makes sense. All right. That, that's awesome. And yeah, I love that you kind of got that. I call it like almost like entrepreneurial permission because I've talked to people who whose parents were or were not. And just like seeing it gives you such a sense of familiarity with it to be like, oh, yeah, I could do that versus someone right, right. who grew up with no sort of entrepreneurialism in their family. And they're just like, no, oh, no, no, that, that seems too hard. It's neither one way or the other, but it's just this kind of thing that becomes a known versus an un unknown and has this, uh, this like effect on how we think about our careers. And I think that they, for me, growing up with, with a father and a brother and, and sort of like an entrepreneurial family, I always craved that lifestyle. Obviously, like in Puerto Rico, the lifestyle is very different because I always joke that people are on island time. So <laughs> that, that hit me pretty hard when I got to Goldman Sachs and had to work 80 hour weeks. But it definitely was something that sort of guided me to say, like, that's the kind of life that I want. And it's going to come at a certain point. But I know I need to do a little bit of work to get there. All right. So you had this professor that gave you this great advice and kind of encouraged you go work somewhere. So when would you say was like this next fork in the road when you said, OK, I got to think hard about my career here and I, I got a tough decision and it's going to have a, a longer impact? Yeah. So as I told you, for me, it started with let me cover my like finance basis because I just spent, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of dollars in tuition over the last, you know, kind of four years in Boston, which by the way, was where I went from Puerto Rico. And it was a crazy decision because it, it was really cold. It, it was a massive change, but you know, you make the best out of it. And honestly, that's where I started creating the network because what I like about Boston and this is sort of like a, a separate point, but it has to do with like the building relationships is that there are so many schools in Boston and people are, you know, there at the same time for the same types of things that you start to develop this incredible network network that, you know, you carry on forever. And as I finished my time in finance, or, or I didn't know I was finishing it at the time, but finance is a very structured environment, right? So there's there, you go to Goldman Sachs, for example, which is where I worked and you're two years as an analyst, you're part of the analyst program, which is an incredible program. And you meet a lot of people through as well, but then you have to, you know, be the top performer within your, let's say analyst class. And then you go to be an associate, you spend three years in a, as an associate, then you become VP, MD, if you're lucky enough and all those things. That seemed too structured for 
for me. That seemed like too much of like, uh, I don't know if I want to be in a structured environment, but also... One of the things we haven't talked about is given my personality, I chose to be within finance, but in the client facing side of finance, which was sales and trading, because I enjoy talking to people. I enjoy solving problems. I enjoy being part of that dynamic culture. But, you know, given the entrepreneurial or let's call it like musician gene that I have in me, I always thought about wanting to create. Like, how can I be part of an environment where I can create and do different things like with within non-structured environments? And listen, it was 2014. Finance was a lot more regulated than it was, you know, kind of before 08. But also Silicon Valley was just booming. Not that it's not yet, you know, but Miami's booming now. So we can say that. <laughs> and, you know, I had that hunch and it was it was sort of by default. A good friend of mine from Puerto Rico had raised a round. He gave me a call and he said, listen, man, we are, you know, raising a round because we need to engage into commercial activities. We need a salesperson. I know you're in sales. I know you could probably talk to anyone. Come figure out, come move to San Francisco. I know it's really far from Puerto Rico. I know it's really far from home, but there's a lot of great things happening here. And one of my oldest brothers, like he went to school in California, but he went to school in Pasadena, which is very different than San Francisco. And, you know, I thought about LA and I remember him, him telling me like, Hey man, I just want you to know San Francisco is not LA. It's not, you know, the rollerblades and the beach and the surfing and all that great fun. It's very different. So I asked him to come out and check out San Francisco and see if there's something that I would, you know, have enough appetite for. And I came and I talked to a lot of people. I saw, you know, the the intensity of everyone talking about tech and, and everyone together building great things. And I signed up for it. And that's what transitioned me from finance into San Francisco. And at first it was crazy because you go from, you know, one of the nicest office buildings in lower Manhattan to uh, a trailer park in, in Mellow Park or, you know, behind the Stanford facilities. And there were 12 of us. Sometimes I had to go buy lunch for people. Sometimes I had to change the office, you know, kind of printer and all those great things. But I took on the opportunity and figured it out. And, and, and it was amazing. So you, well, you, you were working at Standards & Poor's, then you went to Goldman Sachs, so two of like the most prestigious finance firms, and a friend calls you and says, hey, come to the Valley and help me build this startup. Yeah. Listen, high appetite for risk is the way I could describe myself. And honestly, I knew I was you know, going against the grain. I knew I was you know, doing something that wasn't common. But at the same time, as I told you, I think it's really important when you're looking at your career progression, there's nothing I, I've always told myself, like, there's nothing you can't do. And it's also a big influence from growing up where my family would always tell me, if you want to be, you know, a barber, be the best barber out there. Right. So so that always gave me the confidence of saying, like, I'm willing to make this decision. I'm going to go to Silicon Valley. I'm risking the cushy office, you know, the structure and all those types of things. But I know this is where I, I'm going to eventually lead my career to because entrepreneurship seems so much more exciting than finance for me at the time. What were some of the things you were given up at that moment? Like what were like percentage wise, how much did your comp drop, you know, living conditions, just like to frame it for people like from this kind of like steady, like, you know, the, the, everything was on plan. You got the finance yeah. degree, you're working at the best finance place to like what is essentially like the polar opposite, but like you betting on yourself the long term. You know, it's funny you asked that, Dave, and I appreciate that question because that was a, such a huge impact from like a lifestyle standpoint. The comp impact was about 50% uh, drop in, in comp because now you go into a sales role where 
um, your base salary, which is what you're guaranteed on a month-to-month basis, is a lot lower. But the other percentage of your compensation is through commissions, right? And that was a first for me, right? That was not something that in finance, instead, you have a pretty decent base and then you get a pretty decent bonus, right? So... On top of the fact that in finance there are you know 401k matches, there are you know all kinds of insurance, like company stock, and all those types of things. And the bet that you're making in, in such an early stage environment is, I'm going to give not only 50% of my cash, but I'm giving up all these ancillary benefits that you know make up for the total compensation and that are very significant. But I'm betting on the equity part. I'm betting that if I go to this company early on, they were a series A at the time, that that equity component is going to be so much greater in the long run. And that's the bet that you're making, right? Because you got the bonuses in finance. Um, I mean, listen, finance is a great place to make money if that's what you're focusing on, but also given regulation and all those types of things. At Goldman, I used to work in the derivative sales desk, which was one of the main reasons why, you know, 08 happened because of like all these exotic, you know, kind of investments. So the regulation sort of made the profitability of our desk, you know, be impacted. So there was not as much upside. So I saw the upside in, in the equity long term, but the cut that I took, again, about 50% made me have a very different lifestyle, you know, that, that I had to adjust. And luckily, I've only had been in the workforce for four years at that point. So I knew I, I, I had to make an adjustment and, and it was a strong one for sure. So you make that leap, you're there and now, and now you're teaching yourself. Also, you had never done B2B sales, never done SaaS sales, you know, which I think is also a, a kind of a bet on yourself, uh, which I think mm-hmm. is really cool. Obviously, high levels of trust from leadership because they knew you. But what was that like? Like, what did you do? How did you start teaching yourself? So it was intense. And, and, and I got to tell you, like, for me, that was uh, I, I didn't get an MBA because I thought that I was learning so much about tech in this you know environment, especially in San Francisco in that time. But the way I did it was, you know, from let's call it like eight to six, you're at the office. I'm asking all kinds of questions. I'm trying to meet with as many people as possible. And then I imposed myself my own quota where I had to meet four new people a week and go to three events. I mean, I was single, new in San Francisco. So like instead of, you know, kind of sitting down and reading, I decided to to take the event route. I remember going to Eventbrite founders, you know, kind of chats, fireside chats, sales leaders that I, you know, kind of admired. And this was like podcasts were starting to happen. So I listened to a lot of Saster at the time, which is like one of the leading, let's call it like content producers with, within B2B SaaS. And that really helped me to gain an advantage and, and, and sort of learn. Over the weekends, I used to cycle and then go back and skim through LinkedIn and try to absorb as much content as possible. I think LinkedIn back then had less of a presence of like younger people producing content and more like established guys that were producing content. Not that it's a bad thing or whatnot, but it took me a solid year, I would tell you, to really understand what the dynamics for, for SaaS were. Because when you're working for Goldman Sachs, like you have such a huge brand recognition that like you don't have to do outbound, right? You don't have to go find leads. So when you go to an early stage company that has very little credibility, like doing outbound is, is, is like oxygen. It's like something that you have to do in order to survive. So teaching myself, but also believing and trusting that, you know, I could figure it out because it involved a lot of risk taking. You know, I, I remember. We were doing a deal with Intuit at the time, and I was texting with their senior head of HR. 
And one of the founders told me, would you ever think that you would go from being in finance to actually texting with someone so senior within our organization? Because in finance, it's so structured that you don't text like, you know, kind of the, the head of HR at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or anything like that. Maybe now it's different, but that, you know, sort of helped me get comfortable. And I had a lot of support from others that, that made me excited about going to work every day. But again, it was about a year of, of outside work through going to events and, and, and teaching myself all this stuff. And while you were at Zenefits, you were early. That was the company, right? It was 12 people. No. So I actually went to Yifty before. before right, right. Right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Zenefits is a funny story because they knocked on my door and as I was like, you know, kind of immersing myself and, and learning all about these things, I went to an event and I heard their CEO speaking, Parker Conrad, um, who I highly regard. And I was like, wow, working for someone like this has to be such a game changer. And at the time, they were looking to build a product within their sales organization that would manage stock options. It's a product that would compete with Carta, which back then was called eShares. And it was really at the intersection of my experiences because since I sold derivatives, which are you know publicly traded options in some instances, they were looking to essentially manage private options or like the cap table for, for companies. And I was the only one that was capable of speaking to a CFO about, you know, 409A valuations and all, all these like, you know, different intricacies about options, but also can sell. So for me, it was very obvious at the time they had raised 60 million bucks, like nobody had raised 60 million bucks in a series A in Silicon Valley at the time. So I went there, I went early. And honestly, that's one of the things that like completely changed my career. Zenefits was a complete boost for everything that I've done ever since I went there. I think that I exponentially grew because the size of growth of that company or the speed of growth of that company really taught me so many things, which is why you know, highly recommend anyone to do the same thing earlier, earlier on in their career. So did they recruit you or mm -hmm. were you looking for guys? So what, what was Yifty's like area uh, industry or like area of focus? So they sold to HR. They okay. had a HR, let's say employee appreciation product that, that essentially gifted people through gift cards. Every time someone hit their quota or every time you welcome someone to the company, they had a platform that allowed you to gift. But instead of just giving you a random Amazon gift card, you were actually gifted something to a local restaurant, right? So for example, you could go to Versailles and get a Cuban sandwich. You know, if you get someone in Miami and it's immersing them into the court culture, it's something like thoughtful. And, you know, it had a lot of analytics and BI that it would tell you specifically like how people were using it and how people were happier and whatnot within the organization. So Zenefits is you know an, a, the typical hr sale you walk in through hr but then you have to walk into the finance department to sell them the stock options product and that's where i came in so you had like what i would call like a career bullseye right because like a, a lot of times but i always tell people companies want to hire you for what you did not what you want to do right because hiring is risky if you know if the person's mm -hmm. never done it before i wish more companies would take that risk but a lot of companies can't afford to take that risk and so they want to hire you for what you've done and you had this like perfect combination of your two major moments of your career that combined mm -hmm. together perfectly for what this company was launching yeah and and honestly um it was great it was an incredible experience and i felt really comfortable through the interview process you know, it was something new that they were experiencing. And I later realized that it became such an important role for the company because most of their sales came from the insurance derived revenue. 
they gave you the platform for free and essentially they collected the premiums for everyone that they insured through their platform. Uh, but then they realized like we can't put all our eggs in one basket. We can't just make all the money from like the insurance premiums. How do we start developing these add-on components? And they started with stock options that later went down a road where they did payroll, they did time and attendance. And I was sitting there sort of like at the right place at the right time, which eventually led me to manage, um, you know, a very large team that was selling all these paid products. And honestly, that was like my MBA into SaaS um, is, is what I could say. And how'd they find out about you? LinkedIn. And I can't stress enough how important LinkedIn is. Both uh, Zenefits and WeWork found me through LinkedIn. So I know a lot of people spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, like brushing it up, making it look nice, like building their brand. But you just don't know when when it's going to strike. You know, for me, I've always managed, you know, kind of my career jumps through the relationships that I've been able to build. And it's been incredibly successful. But that sort of has led me to be in, in a good situation. So when, you know, the recruiter is doing their own outbound through LinkedIn, you know, and they find me and both of them have been incredible opportunities. All right. So I'm going to assume now the next big moment was, you, I'll call that, that phase, your HR tech phase of your career. Then a real estate company comes along uh, where you and I cross paths. What was that? switch like? What were you thinking when you're like, hey, I know how to do SaaS. I know how to do B2B. They're approaching me for real estate, co-working. What, uh, what, was, what was going through your mind? A lot of things, actually. So I think I told you earlier, Dave, that when I went to San Francisco, I was like, man, I'm going far from my family. Like, you know, this is, you know, disruptive to the traditional, you know, Latino upbringing where you stay close to your family and all those great things. So when I was in San Francisco, you know, after being there for about five years, I loved it and it was awesome, but I wanted to somehow, you know, kind of be closer to home. And everything sort of aligned. And, and at the time I received, uh, you know, my LinkedIn message from Kara Friedman, who you, you know, and she was looking for a sales manager in Miami to figure out sales for the mid-market slash enterprise space, which meant bringing in larger clients or uh, anchored, let's say, tenants. And it was really hard to find a job in Miami. Like historically, trying to come to Miami and after having competitive salaries and, and you know, career opportunities in New York and San Francisco, such things just didn't exist in Miami. And when I got that message, I remember I was like, wow, really? And it's it's the type of company that has the New York mentality, the New York velocity and, and speed, but it's based out of Miami and I get to be closer to home and I get to bring a lot to the table. I was hesitant at first to the same exact point that you mentioned because the beauty of software is that it's unlimited inventory and you can sell as much as possible. But when you go into the real estate world, uh, you have a limited inventory, right? Because you're based selling based off an asset that gets to a certain capacity. So for me, it was exciting because it was new. And, and the interesting thing and the debate that was happening, you know, in 2017, right around these conversations started was that, you know, we were was not really a tech company or was a real estate. But what I got to identify through the process is that the distribution model was very SaaS-like. And the speed at which, you know, sales were done and how people were compensated was just that of like a SaaS culture. So for me, it was a pretty easy decision when I came down here and saw what was happening. And also there was a little bit of a challenge because Miami in 2017 was, uh, they call it the stress market. 
which is really funny because like now it's a complete opposite, but very few big companies wanted to come to Miami. And, and for me, it was a big challenge because I said, I understand the culture. I speak Spanish. I've been in SaaS. I manage teams. Like I've seen hyper growth, all these things like, you know, kind of checked off the box into what we work was, you know, looking for, but also doing. So I didn't really hesitate. Like, I think I had more hesitation going from New York to San Francisco than from San Francisco to Miami. Cause I, so you had four different roles in your two years there. So I think you moved pretty quickly. So, so talk to me about some of like the big decisions, you know, and then I'll ultimately, you know, leaving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, listen, this is just that we were pretty fast, but, but it was, it was a speed that I appreciate kind of working in and it has to probably do with my personality. But I think that I saw it as a test. I was like, okay, I'm, I went from running an enterprise team to being the sales manager in, in Miami at WeWork. And, you know, pretty soon enough, like the company realized like, Hey, we got to give this guy a little bit more opportunity. Cause you know, we had five buildings in Miami at the time we were, you know, kind of doing pretty good close a pretty large deal back in 2018. And we were running out of space. So the company sort of like saw the potential and I tried to make myself available and very nimble in terms of the things that I was willing to do. So what led me to get promoted was I raised my hand for any opportunity available. And they told me, you want to manage Texas and Texas has nothing to do with Florida as you know, I mean, but by the fact that we both, I guess, uh, states don't pay state taxes as the only, you know, similarity, <laughs> I guess. Right. But I said, yes. And that opened up a lot of doors, Dave. And, and I think that that's what has allowed me throughout my entire career to always raise my hand and say like, let's go, let's do it. And actually that led me in 2019 to be on a plane mostly every week. I flew about 110,000 miles that year, which was crazy. But I was, you know, flying between Florida and Texas mostly every week because I had a team over there. I had a team here and that experience and those results essentially led me to be able to grab more states in the Southeast. And it was really like applying the playbook of, you know, Silicon Valley and New York mentality to these Southern states that tend to operate a little bit behind in terms of, of uh, adopting new products or adopting, you know, kind of new ways of working, which is really what we were selling. And, and again, me being able to raise my hand was something that led me to that growth and always, you know, kind of saying yes, but with an eye on, on what I wanted to do. Right. Because I don't, I don't want to by any means recommend that I, I've always been a yes man. Cause I've certainly said no many times, but, but that led me to grow into leading, you know, kind of the Southeast, which is a great experience. And, you know, we work towards, you know, Q4 of 2019, as you obviously know very well, uh, you know, ran into a couple of different walls, failed our IPO. We had a couple of rifts that sadly made me, you know, kind of let go of a lot of my direct team. And in 2020, I was uh, given the option to either stay as an individual contributor or leave. And here's another risk moment where I'm still thinking about how to solve for the entrepreneurial side of my career. And as I reflected, I realized February 2020, I have this amazing playbook of different sales environments. And I start to get calls from different companies that were looking for sales leaders. And after going through Xanafits, which had a rough ending, and WeWork that you know, had an interesting ending at the time, I realized like, how do I hedge myself and build something where I don't entirely commit, but I hedge myself, which was another career learning from selling derivatives, 
to have you know this disperse risk across different companies but still help them and that led me to start quota and that led me to decide okay this is my time to leave because now i have the proper experience to teach others how to implement the b2b SaaS sales playbook into their organizations early on and be successful so i think that's something a lot of people try to grapple with is like starting my own business doing my own thing and you know, I always actually, I default dissuade people from doing it, which is, it feels a little hypocritical because I've done it enough times now that, but <laughs> I just feel like it's going to, you're going to be faced with a lot of no's and a lot of rejection. So I'm like, Hey, let me get sure. them started early on that process. But talk to us a little bit about that initial process, you know, kind of how you were able to, cause I think also a lot of people think that they just take a deep dive, like plunge right in most people that you look at when they start their own company ha- have done a certain amount of hedging. They did fractional work or they did part-time mm-hmm. Like you know, Bill Gates had a job, Steve jobs had a job, few people just like rip the bandit off and do it. So teach us a little bit about your transition and kind of how you manage that. Yeah. So full transparency, I did have a client on the side. So that gave me a lot of conviction. Right. A lot of people sometimes say, like, you know, work on your side hustle uh, until it becomes your full time hustle and all that kind of stuff. And and I, I, to a degree, did that. But I noticed and realized that in order for me to build a services business, which is how I started, I needed the time. Right. Seeing the decline in my responsibilities at WeWork, I realized I need to spend 100% of my time in doing this. And it was probably one of the scarier decisions I had done in my career because, first of all, at the time, by the time I made the decision, it was April 2020 and we were in a global pandemic, right? So I was, I was stuck at home in Miami with my girlfriend at the time. And it was so scary because nobody knew what was going to happen. I also caught COVID in March 2020 and I swore I was going to die because every time that I you know turned on the news, there was little information. There were like 24-year-olds, 26-year-olds all on ventilators. So... I remember waking up and texting my friend that works at the ER in Miami every day and saying like, Hey, like I can't smell anything. What do I do? So that added to the anxiety of, of, you know, new project, you know, sitting at home, keep in mind that I was, I was, you know, working in an environment where I was consistently moving around every day because I was showing different locations with my team at WeWork. But I, but I saw suddenly more and more people pay attention to the SaaS world, right? The public markets, sort of like gave me that, you know, kind of uh, indication that tech was doing good. And Zoom at the time was crushing it. So I started, you know, kind of to think about like all these companies have a B2B SaaS distribution model. And if they're going to start using Zoom, like I've been selling at the time I was using JoinMe and, you know, then Zoom and then, you know, all the other platforms that that do sort of like this video sharing as well. So I, I know how to do that. Like this is this is what I've been doing, uh, you know, for the last couple of years. So why not? And interestingly enough, what I did was I can't go company to company. So what I went to solve for next was like, how do I find a channel that gives me exposure to a lot of opportunities, right? And and this I look I brought from you know the B two B sales world, right? You find a channel partner, sort of like at Zenefits, we would sell to CPAs. CPAs have a bunch of different clients, so if you land that CPA, it means that you probably get exposure to their book of business, which means like you maybe get twenty clients from that one CPA. So for me, it was VCs. So how do I get in touch with VCs, my friends that have gone into investing into early stage companies and offer them my services because everyone needs to build a sales team. And most companies start building, you know, as technical founders, but they don't have the commercial experience. So 
I started doing that and I started getting, you know, a lot of success through that and started packaging, you know, the hours or packaging the services. And that little by little led me to, to have early success again, which I sort of had to pull in all of the resources and all the different tools of my experience. Again, hedging, looking at the markets, bringing tools from like Zenefits and really doing that as a business leader. But uh, was it scary? 100%. Did I know what I was doing? I thought I did. Now I, I think I know a little bit more, but, but it's in that like conviction to find early success and really listen to the market. And what the market told me was that there was appetite for that. And that led me to, you know, kind of continue to trust myself. And that, that's, that's honestly what allowed me to keep going. You know, I owe it to my personality. I, I can't sit still a lot. So, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to figure out, you know, how to go to the next step. You know, it's, it's been interesting because like now as a business owner, focus is a big thing, right? So I have to channel that energy of like wanting to move and do 20 things at a time to figure out how to like with patience build something greater. Because obviously my ambition is not just to be a consultant the rest of my life is how do I productize this into, you know, something that scales. And I think that's, that's a skill set that, you know, now learning how to work with is, you know, channel all that energy into the one thing to grow it. Yeah. I'm sure you can tell me a lot more about that, right? We can tell you how not to do it well, but, uh, you know, doing it well, I'm still figuring it out. But Javier, thank you so much I know you're active online, active in the Miami tech community. How can folks follow along, get in touch, see all the cool things you're doing, tap into quota. Tell us a bit about how we can learn more. Thank you. Twitter and LinkedIn are the best ways you can get in touch with me. LinkedIn's Javier Ramirez Lugo. I'm on Twitter as Javi E-U-G. Our website is quota.io. So the reason it's with a C is because we do a lot of work in Latin America as well. So how you spell it uh, in Spanish is with a C. So in English, it's a play on words. So it sort of like targets both markets. But yeah, LinkedIn, Twitter uh, is the best way. Awesome. Well, we'll put links in the show notes, whether it be YouTube or Spotify, you can find links there. And Javier is also an avid bike rider. So if you want to get good bike riding tips in Miami, you can get those as cyclists. But Javier, thank, thank you. you so much. There was a lot to learn in this conversation and uh, we really appreciate it. No, thank you, Dave. Always a pleasure. And that's it for this episode of Nonlinear. If you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe, share, and rate us wherever you're listening to the show. You can learn more about Teal on our website, tealhq.com. That's teal like the color, T-E-A-L-H-Q.com. Or follow us on social media at teal underscore HQ. Thank you so much for joining us. And please tune back in to keep hearing about how we make the decisions that shape our career. The Teal Career Paths podcast is produced by Rainbow Creative with senior producer Matthew Jones and editor and associate producer Drew McPowell. You can find more information on them at rainbowcreative.co. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.